Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. Hi there, this is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, there are many ways of getting our show. You can download directly from our website at techcentral.ie, use a smartphone podcast app, iTunes of course, or turn us on every Friday on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. The big, big story this week has been the Dublin Tech Summit, which was on on Wednesday and Thursday. Our Tech Central editor, Niall Kitson, was there and chatted with some of the main speakers and organisers. So I'm meeting with Niall O'Reilly, who is the CEO of the Dublin Tech Summit. And I guess, Niall, just to jump straight into what you're doing here, um, I guess there was a a tech-shaped hole in the Dublin calendar over the last maybe year and a half. And um, this is probably one of the um, bigger challenges I think event organisers have had. Um, So tell us a little bit about the genesis of the Tech Summit and what makes it different. Yeah, there was definitely a bit of a hole there. I think that there are very strong foundations for technology conferences in Dublin and indeed in Ireland as well. Um, the CCD has lent itself to be an incredible venue and that actually makes a huge difference to the type of experience that people do have here. Um, the fact that it has the facilities for meetings, the fact that it has plugs on the seats when you're in the main stage. It's the little things that will make a difference to people attending. Um, Also, the building is all in one building. There's six floors, but the likelihood that you're going to bump into someone that you met yesterday or at an earlier session is way higher, which means that you have a stronger opportunity to do business and to network and to get to know people within your sector or maybe not within your sector and learn something new. One of the things that I've noticed uh, in terms of the speakers is that there seems to be a a lot more engagement with the topics that's, that's going on on. Um, people seem to ha- have a bit more time to breathe in developing their ideas. Uh, was that a conscious decision on your part? Yes. We first reached out to the speakers and they started saying, well, what do you want to talk to me? What do you want me to talk about? And I said, well, what are you most passionate about? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's your talk. Tell me what you're most passionate about and I'll create an agenda, an agenda around your passions. And we did that to all speakers. Um, Some wanted guidance, some didn't. Most of them took the opportunity to let it be something of passion, and I think that's reflecting extremely well today. I think uh, one of the things that certainly brings that out is the emphasis on emerging technology, that we are seeing things on robotics and and AI um, and and big data. So so when people were gravitating towards different areas, um, was there any stage at which you went, um, okay, can you make it actually a little bit more difficult? No. Is a really simple answer to that. We we didn't because we want this to be something that people can also relate to. You know, the the audience here is so so varied. There are the typical developers and coders, and that's that's wonderful because they're meeting people from a completely different industry, and people are learning. Um, there's a huge audience here of of women in technology, of students, of all these different types of, of people. And we want to make it as easy as possible for people to understand. I'm never going to use the words layman's terms for these things because they're not. These are things that we, the words IOT mean nothing to most people. But to me, it's Internet of Things. And that's because I work in this industry. But most people don't know that. So at the very last minute, we changed the letters IOT to Internet of Things because it was a simple thing that we didn't realize people didn't understand. And I think that when you work in an industry, you often forget that people 
aren't aware. They don't like they. There's small things that people aren't aware of, and I think it's important to remember that as well for something like this. Uh, I think that accessibility level is certainly a, a strength of the event. Um, we've I, looking around. I, I see kids from second level in their in their uniforms going going into events and coming out obviously inspired by by what they've seen. But I, I think the breadth of guests that you have is quite interesting. Where you have um, people from Pixar, but also Jimmy Chamberlain. I think is one of the keynote speakers as well. So, uh, how do you convince somebody that's perhaps outside the the mainstream of tech to come and lend their experience and to show, look, I've done this, but it's actually really relevant to what you guys do? You just tell the truth. I think that your passion, if they hear the passion in your voice and you explain to them what you're trying to do, the fact that you're year one and you want to bring people together and you're extremely honest, they'll come. I think that the worst thing that you can do when you're inviting someone to something like this is to try and lead them down, uh, you know, tell them, I don't know who's going to be in your audience. I actually don't know. But I do think that people who are interested in hearing you talk will come. So I'm, I can't tell you who they are, but I can tell you that your passion will be well received. And you ha- I just think honesty is, the, is a real core of, of this, that you, you have to be passionate, honest and let people know the truth. And as a year one event, uh, I guess sort of the, this has proven the strength of the concept and the continued relevance of, of Dublin as a, as a tech hub. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. That was the that was the hope. Um, I mean, Dublin is incredible. It's an incredible place to do business. It's an incredible place to do work in technology, especially in the Silicon Docks. It, it, I mean, there's a bar called the Bath and you know that the staff of Google and Facebook and Twitter will be hanging around. It's, you just know. And it's because it's all in the same place. But what it allows for is an incredible networking opportunity. You're not getting on the underground or the tube to go half an hour in a different direction. It actually allows for incredible networking. Yeah, we have, we have some infrastructure problems in terms of transportation and whatnot. But for a tech, this hub is perfect. The apartment buildings, they're all, you know, it's, it's everything here. We have this beautiful little hub in Dublin, and I think that we need to celebrate that and, and not, not just always criticise what's going on. Celebrate what we have and not what we don't have. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. I'm speaking now with Eva Mirbach, who is the CEO of Fashion One Group. She is also the head of research for IFDAC, which is a, an AI system for the um, fashion industry. We'll talk about that in a little bit more depth. And she's also editor-in-chief of FMDB.com, which is, I, I guess, the easiest way to describe it is the it's the internet movie database for fashion. So, Eva... Uh, when one thinks of big data, you think of easily quantifiable things like sales in shops or admissions to the cinema. Or, um, However, data does have a role in the fashion industry, but in various different forms. So can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of data you're dealing with in the fashion industry? Well, we deal with different kinds of data in the fashion industry. We have the online Datas and of course the offline datas, which are not so easy to quantify as the online datas, because for online datas uh, you have the numbers, you have everything, you know, uh, most probably you know also the user, and you know exactly where the user is coming from, what he, what's his age, if he's female, male, and so on, which is in the offline world a little bit harder to define. 
So when it comes to online data, you can look at things like maybe previous shopping history, or you've got a lot of demographics coming off Google Analytics, for example. Um, you've also got things that are trending on Facebook and Instagram. These are kind of the sources that you're looking for in online data. Right. And then when it comes to offline data, however, you're dealing with a much more um, uh, almost ephemeral uh, primary source in that you're looking at things like magazines. So how do you turn um, something that on the surface of it is non-quantifiable into something that can be quantifiable? Well, this is what we do with the IFTAC. We try to quantify everything which is offline, starting from brands, from magazine, designers, fashion models, and we try to value them. Um, for example, if you look at a fashion magazine inside a page, which is uh, non-quantified, we try to give it the value. Uh, it could be compared with an empty room, which you like to measure, but you have no measurement. So you have maybe a piece of paper, which is 20 centimeters, and with this piece of, uh, piece of paper, we are able to measure the room. And uh, what we do is, we, if you have a picture of a magazine, we look at what is on the picture, who... Uh, in which magazine is the image, uh, which photographer, which brand are displayed, which model is on the picture. And as we have the values for all the entity, um, entities of the fashion industry, we can value the piece of paper, uh, the page inside the magazine. And also compared to other uh, pages or inside the magazine or to other mag pages of other magazines. And so you have uh, different kind of values. So when we look at the market intelligence that's out there, yeah. Um, are people paying more attention to it than maybe they would have in the past? Into the fashion industry, well, I think, of course, they do, because the fashion is uh, something fast-changing and uh, which sets trends. So everybody's focusing on what's happening now in the fashion industry. And uh, it's changed a lot because now the online appearance of fashion brands and uh, also the online influencers are getting more and more popular. So in this case, it's changed. So we're not necessarily going to see a case of clothes designed by artificial intelligence in the future. Uh, well, I don't think so, because uh, still we lo like to have our influencers or, or uh, uh, celebrities we follow or, yes, uh, let's say style maker like Kara or Kate Moss. And yes, we want to dress like them. And if it's a robot who designs the clothes for us, so it's, uh, there is no personal connection. We need, I think the style is something that also shows you who you are, what you are. Clothes make people in the end. And uh, if you style like someone you l like from the entertainment industry, so it's like a um, status symbol to having the same way of life or, yes. So we're not going to see robots take over our, our wardrobes just no, yet. I don't believe so. <laughs> This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Of no party or click is the tagline for The Atlantic, a long-running American political magazine, um, which has had considerable success both online and offline. And I'm here talking with the senior vice president and publisher, Hayley Romer, uh, who is speaking here this afternoon. So, Hayley, just for our, our listeners over in Ireland who mightn't be familiar with The Atlantic, just tell us a little bit about it. 
So the Atlantic actually will be 160 years old this year, which is pretty incredible if you think about it. Uh, it's the third longest continually published magazine in the United States. Um, and the Atlantic was actually founded to be a platform for big ideas that would help to shape the world. Really what our founders wanted was, as you said, to be of no party or clique. So when writing about things like politics, we really did not intend to take one side of any particular issue, rather expose people to different perspectives that would help them understand or gain a greater understanding of what's happening in the world in order to formulate their own opinions about things. Uh, and of course, as of a, a very eminent publication, I guess, one of the things that really has affected the publishing industry across the board is the transformation of a commercial model from one that embraces print to one that manages to balance print and online. And uh, The Atlantic has made a fairly successful go of managing that transition or maybe not transition, but treating digital as an equal as opposed to a, a ghetto, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yes, actually, we've had incredible success transforming our business. In fact, about 85% of our advertising revenue is digital today versus print, where it was. Um, this has been an incredible uh, feat for us, certainly in a world where publishers are struggling to transform their businesses and tr- struggling to build up both audiences as well as revenue that can replace that of what, what's happening in print. At the same time, while the revenue is doing really well on the digital side and our audience continues to grow, our print proposition has actually never been stronger. So two times in the course of the past six months, and in fact two times just throughout our 160-year history, we've actually reprinted a magazine issue because it's sold out on newsstands. So we are absolutely bucking all trends from revenue being more digitally driven than print driven to audiences coming to us in droves, obviously on the site, but as well in print. One of the discussions that continually goes on in the print industry is, are we sacrificing revenue for traffic? But you don't seem to be experiencing that at all. It seems to be as the traffic grows, it feeds back positively into the print product. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Well, so are we sacrificing revenue for the audience? Is that was that the question? Yeah, as audiences grow digitally, that the the revenue on the print side goes down, as you're as we're seeing in titles like the Guardian. Right. Well, so the revenue on the print side does uh, it it has decreased over the course of the past several years, but I think in fact that that's been largely driven by a shift in the advertising marketplace. That's advertisers saying, you know what, we don't necessarily want to spend our money in print because they're looking for ways to be more efficient and looking for ways to prove greater ROI, which they can get through digital versus print. Um, but I don't think the two are related, right? As I just mentioned, we're selling out on newsstands, so the audience has never been greater in print, yet the revenue continues to decline. That's not for a lack of effort in trying to gain the revenue, but again, I think that's the advertiser's perspective that perhaps the eyeballs are not as um, are not as measurable. I wouldn't say not as valuable. I would say not as measurable in the print property as they are online. So I think that's just a trend in advertising as opposed to an audience trend. Um, also, our subscriptions are up. They were up over 150% in the month of January year over year. So people continue to come to the Atlantic and continue to um, continue to ask for the print product. Um, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we released our March issue um, a couple of weeks early because we felt like the story we had on the cover was very important. It was ready to go, and it was perfectly timed to what was happening in the news cycle. Um, coincidentally, perfectly timed to what was happening in the news cycle. So we released the issue to a subscri- we, we released the issue, put it out on the web. We sent a note to subscribers, letting them know. And overnight, in less than twelve hours, we had a thousand new subscribers to the magazine, which is just incredible. 
And one of the things that we keep hearing, it's, it's a very dated maxim at the moment, is content is king. Is that really what is driving this sort of um, incredible rise in readership and subscriptions? Yeah, I'm, well, I wouldn't just say content is king. I would say high-quality content is king, right? Our commitment to uphold the standard of journalistic excellence has never wavered. We do not intend to move from that. That is why we exist. That's why our readers come to us. Um, and that is really the backbone of our brand. So as long as we are doing that, I think we'll continue to succeed. And uh, you're here to talk about, uh, at the Dublin Tech Summit, uh, you're giving a talk called The Importance of Questioning Answers. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Questioning Answers is actually a little bit of a, um, a, a new sort of tagline at the Atlantic. It's it's a part of a campaign that we're rolling out actually today in the States. It's going to be launching um, any moment now. Um, but the idea behind it is that really what we aim to do at the Atlantic is not to sort of give you... Um, all the information you need to know or tell you what we think, but it's more about allowing you to challenge your assumptions. It's more about the fact that people come to the Atlantic to read varying perspectives, just as we had set out in our mission to do 160 years ago, um, but they come to the Atlantic to really think more and more deeply about the issues that they are facing, right? The issues that we are facing as a society, and as I said, just issues of consequence. That's what Questioning Answers is about. And uh, I guess one of the forums in which people are questioning answers these days is social media. And one of the criticisms of social media is this notion of echo chambers, that people aren't actually going onto Twitter or Facebook groups to actually engage. They just want to go up and have their existing ideas confirmed. So um, how does this problem affect the Atlantic as a title? Does it affect the perception of the Atlantic? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. It's a conversation that we're wrestling with right now. Um, and really what we're wrestling with is what is the role and responsibility of a publisher in a world where people are self-selecting into or filtering the information that they're getting. So, um, you know, on the one hand, people are consuming our content through social media, they're engaging with it, and they may view it as being on a certain side, you know, based, I'd say, on an article-by-article basis, uh, validating their opinions or not. Um, of course, we're happy to have people engage with our content regardless of how they engage with it, and we do allow them access to our content on platforms. Um, I think really it's the tension between the platforms that are looking to keep readers in their space for longer periods of time by giving them more of what they want. In some cases, that means pulling a publisher right into their feed and creating that echo chamber. Um, we as a publisher do not deliberately look for readers who are only of a certain mindset, right? I mean, we have uh, writers that write for us on so many different perspectives, um, so many different sides of the aisle, if you will. And, um, of course, we can't necessarily help if a reader chooses to only read certain content. But what we can do is obviously use technology to help help perhaps suggest certain content to readers may be a varying perspective. So that's something we're actually toying with as an idea. You know, if we know that you've read X amount of content that sort of validates one side, uh, uh, a one-sided opinion, we might suggest to you, because we have this data, that you read a varying perspective, because we have the ability to do that. Um, so these are the types of things that we're thinking about. But it is a huge question, you know, what is the role and responsibility of a publisher when you do publish content? Um, if you've reported honestly and fairly on a subject, I think probably it's the um, reader's responsibility to think about varying perspectives, but we do like to give people the opportunity to engage with, with varying perspectives. Um, and then you have to consider the technology's role and the platform's role in all of that. 
And do you think we'll get to the stage where when you visit the website, when you visit the publication, you're not necessarily going to get, you know, the latest. You might end up with a personalized version of the site based on your reading habits. Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. We are working on something that um, perhaps answers that. I can't give you too much information about it now, but we're building it out um, and we'll release more on that in the next couple of months. Because the the idea of the the magazine is the the place for debate. It's almost become antiquated at this stage because, from what I'm noticing in American media, the political climate has forced everything to be very partisan, um, and some uh, well, a portion of it intentionally inaccurate. So, do you see the role of you know the magazine um, or magazines in general as that kind of forum now, as sort of a marketplace of ideas? Yeah, I think people come to magazines for all sorts of reasons. What we know about readers of The Atlantic is that they come because they are generally open-minded and they want to be exposed to, to different thinking. Um, we aim to report as honestly and fairly on any in every issue that we're writing about. Um, that's our goal. So I think our responsibility as journalists is to report the truth to the extent that we can, not simply as we see it or as we want it to be. And from there, you know, our hope is that we continue to attract audiences who are open to varying perspectives. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. I'm now speaking with Chris Himes, who is president of Indeed, the via incredibly popular job search uh, website. I think it's fair to say at this stage, um, I gather you've got 200 million job job visitors a month. Would that be accurate? Yeah, more than 200 million job seekers in more than 60 countries around the world come to Indeed every month to look for jobs. And uh, specifically, we're talking to uh, Chris because um, he has made a very important announcement about Indeed's presence in Ireland, specifically the uh, introduction or of 500 new jobs. And um, so, Chris, tell us a little bit about um, the areas that you will be hiring over the next few months. So we, we came to Dublin uh, just under five years ago with three employees. We have 500 now. We announced 500 new roles. And this is really the base for all of our European, uh, Middle East, and African operations. So really supporting the whole business for uh, expansion in that region. It's sales and client services. It's marketing, strategy, finance. And, of course, because we have to hire all those people, HR and recruiting. Uh, and of course, where there's a, a, a massive hiring, there there's usually a good product story behind it. Um, it's not, it's not just about gathering new users to uh, to the site. So, uh, tell us a little bit about what's been going on in the background with Indeed. Uh, specifically, let's talk about Indeed University to begin with. Sure. So, Indeed is a search engine for jobs. We have jobs from all over the world that are online on Indeed. We started this new program two summers ago to really onboard our new college hires, and we thought that the best way to do that would be to ask them to come up with their own ideas and really just build their own startups within Indeed. Um, And this is a way for us to explore new ideas that we might not know about. And one of the teams that first summer has built uh, a new product for Indeed that's one of the most new, uh, exciting things to come out of Indeed in the last decade. It's a product called JobSpotter. And what JobSpotter does is it's an app that anyone who has uh, carrying around on their phone. If they spot a now hiring sign in a window, they can take a picture and post that job directly to Indeed. Um, And so this is trying to expand our position today. We have 18 million jobs that are online that are all on Indeed. This is now tapping into the millions of jobs that are not online anywhere. 
Um, and one of the most exciting things about this is that the idea when it was first pitched, uh, I told the team that it was a dumb idea and it would never work. Um, and that explicitly the way that we try to develop new ideas is to start from a perspective of we don't necessarily know what's best and let's test it out. So even though I thought it was a bad idea, they went ahead and did it anyway. And they uh, they proved that I was wrong. It's the fourth most popular source of jobs on Indeed worldwide with job seekers. Uh, we've had more than 800,000 jobs posted over the last six months. And uh, this has been a really exciting year for us Indeed. I think what's interesting about JobSpotter is that uh, it really does help companies where people aren't tech savvy or, you know, don't don't have a mind to advertise jobs. Absolutely. So we have made it as easy as we possibly can for employers to get their jobs on Indeed. If they have a website, we've already got them. If they don't, they can post those jobs for free. But for most small shops, they have no one who's responsible for hiring. What they really need is just people to walk in the shop and fill out an application. So by being able to have anyone take a picture and get that job online for them, we're able to tap into the 60% of all job seekers who are already looking on their phone for jobs to find a job that might be just around the corner that they hadn't noticed and to be able to walk in that store and apply for it. Moving up to the higher end of the, the jobs market, which is somewhere that you're probably a lot more comfortable with, when you have so many millions of people using the website, there has to become a, there has to be a line there where, where you can recognize that an account is dormant or somebody is no, lo- no longer looking for a job or sometimes maybe even an employer folds. What is going on at the moment at Indeed to look for those sort of the high level candidates and to may- maybe convince them into moving their, their job? Well, so we just launched a new product last year that is actually being introduced into the Irish market uh, this month. It's a product called Indeed Prime, and it's specifically focused on hiring top technical talent. So on the other end of the spectrum, the people who are typically the hardest to hire are uh, the data scientists, software designers, software developers. Um, We are an employment site. We're also employers, and so we have uh, a whole bunch of people like that that we want to hire. And so we built a product that essentially is a resume search, but with only highly qualified candidates who are actively looking, um, who've already disclosed where they're willing to relocate and what their salary requirements are. And so any employer can come in and search and directly contact them. It's also great for the job seeker. Most software engineers, and I work with a lot of them, really hate the process of looking for jobs, and they just want to get it over with very quickly. So uh, a software developer who's on that platform will go live on Indeed Prime, and within a week we'll get maybe 10 different job offers from people. They'll know exactly what the position is, where they'd be working, and with that uh, initial outreach, they also have to say what the salary for the position is. So they can very efficiently look at all those opportunities, and it makes it a lot easier for companies like ours to hire people and for people who are very talented to find a job as quickly as possible. You mentioned there one of the um, things that you have a look at is people's willingness to travel for a new job. We're in a particularly um, uh, fractious, I suppose, political climate at the moment, uh, particularly with Brexit, perhaps with the, the Trump presidency in America, and it's created a, a lot of uncertainty for people. Um, what kind of information are you looking at, uh, at Indeed to see what kind of trends are going on, what kind of jobs are available, and where are people willing to actually work in them? Yeah, so one of the things that uh, is really clear is that work is is a really important part of people's lives, and almost any news affects how they think about work. So, for example, right after Brexit, in the 72 hours following that vote, 
we looked very carefully at the cross-border job searches within the EU. One thing that we saw immediately was that the searches from the UK to Ireland increased by 250% immediately. Uh, Just as interesting is that searches from all of the other EU countries into Ireland also increased by 220%. So it's very clear that Ireland as a potential destination for work for English-speaking people of all nations in the EU might actually be the beneficiary of Brexit. Uh, and I suppose it's it's no harm that we do have that cluster effect over here with with tech companies when you're looking to to expand yourself. So do you, do you predict that uh, you know if this trend predict if this trend continues that um that that cluster effect will only continue to grow or do you think we are we are reaching some sort of plateau? Yeah, the the trend over the last decade has been that a concentration of jobs actually leads to more jobs and more people wanting to go there. Uh, unlike the the theory of the world is flat, where at one point we thought that because you could connect with Skype and uh, and be online that you could work from anywhere, there's actually more software developers in San Francisco, in Seattle in Dublin, in Berlin, in all of those places. Um, There's a multiplicative effect that happens when there are more people and more jobs. And one of the reasons that drew us to Dublin in the first place is that there's an incredible and diverse talent pool. People from, we're a global company and, uh, you know, we have 19 different nationalities represented in our office here in Dublin. And so the more companies and the more jobs that attract more people, that makes more people want to come here and more companies like ours want to hire more. And that was Niall Kitson talking to some of the movie and shakers at Dublin Tech Summit this week. That's our show for this week. Next week, we'll be back with all the latest tech news from Ireland and a feature interview with Jacqueline Morey from the States, who was VR before VR was VR. It's a great interview. You're going to love it. In the meantime, remember, you can get the latest Irish tech news with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie as well as our weekly tech radio show online and every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Have a great weekend. Until next time, from myself, Dusty and from Niall, thanks for listening. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Central.